Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. I'm your host, Jody Scardillo. This week, we sit down with Edward Bites. Ed is an attorney who focuses his practice on medical malpractice defense. He defends doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, and hospitals at the trial and appellate levels, as well as general liability matters. He has successfully defended numerous medical malpractice cases at trial involving complex issues of the human anatomy, such as cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, nursing care, obstetrical complications, nerve and vascular injuries. He has also tried multiple cases to defense verdicts before arbitration panels in Philadelphia County. Ed's practice has involved a wide range of other medical specialties, including bariatric surgery, pain management, and emergency medicine. He has authored briefs on appellate issues in healthcare and coverage matters to the Superior Court of Pennsylvania, the New Jersey Appellate Division, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. He has also written and developed articles and presentations on emerging issues in medical malpractice, such as the increased relevance of electronic medical records in the context of civil litigation. This podcast today is based off of a recent webinar entitled, Don't Write So You Can Be Understood, Write So That You Can't Be Misunderstood. Also, Ed has recently been honored with the U.S. News Best Lawyer, Lawyer of the Year, Medical Malpractice in Philadelphia. So thanks for joining me and congratulations, Ed. Happy to be here, Jody. So I'm first interested to know, and what made you pick this aspect of law practice? Because there's lots of ways to be a lawyer, I think, just like as a nurse. The truth of it is, is that I graduated in the and I went to clerk for an appellate judge for a year where I got all kinds of flavor of law, but nothing really changed what I thought I wanted to do, which is whatever I did in law, I wanted to make sure that I was, as a preceptor of mine once told me, would be a real lawyer. I wanted to be somebody who stood up in court, made a case. I didn't want to be reviewing merger and acquisition documents and writing contracts, whereas that stuff is frankly sometimes even more lucrative than what I do. And it strikes me as just not something I'm suited for. My skills in life are standing up connecting with people, making my point and trying to do it as succinctly as possible, which is hard for me sometimes and sitting down. I was attracted to doing litigation and I was attracted to the firm that I work for, White and Williams, because of its reputation and just it's as being a really good law firm, but also one where I could have a life. And the job that they were hiring for was in their healthcare group. The reason, so choosing it isn't necessarily anything specific to medicine, but why I stayed in it ultimately is every case is different. I'm not a scientist, but I share I'm interested in it. I like science. I like people who, my mother's a nurse, my aunt's a nurse. I have a lot of respect for people in the medical profession. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, who you need more in life than the person who can take care of you when you're sick, when your family member is sick. I take a lot of pride in being able to stand with those folks when they're being criticized for something that they didn't do or that isn't fair. Meanwhile, Sometimes they do make mistakes and sometimes the case does have problems and that doesn't make those people bad people. And I like to be able to be with them to help them get through a really difficult process and to make them feel as good as possible about that process. 
and to help them feel better. So that's how I landed here. But more importantly, that's why I stayed in this field. Right. And so I bet you've reviewed a lot of charts. And I bet there are things that you think are really important things that you hope to find when you look at, say, a wound ostomy continence nurse's documentation. Can you share some of those thoughts with us? If there's an overall arching principle that I like to see is I like to see whether it's a progress note, whether it's flow sheet documentation, whether it is a pain chart, just a specific form that's been designed by whoever the electronic medical record is, or for those few institutions that still use some paper, seeing a note that lets, makes it really easy for me to show that like this person was there. They were there. They were or, just like we look for in our patients or for in your patients. We look for orientation to place, time, what's happening. You were there. You spoke with the patient. You have an assessment of what's going on, that those assessments aren't cut and pasted from some other note, which is just, if there's anything that has been the downfall Electronic medical records are good in a lot of ways. They've been a big help to me in defending certain cases, but they've also been a real problem when it comes to the things that we can do to make shortcuts. The shortcuts are frankly what are going to make a jury look at a particular piece of documentation and go, did this actually happen? Could this situation be so similar to what it was the day before, the day before that, that it really only took this person to copy and paste the exact same thing that they wrote before. So yes, subjectivity, just that you were there, you had ideas, you had a plan in place that you observed changes. And that as an overarching principle, that's what I'm looking for. Mm. Attention to detail. Okay. And what do you see that makes you shudder or go, oh my God? Misassessments. And it goes across the board. It's not just in nursing documentation, but shortcuts just same as above. It's similar to the cut and paste issue, but that is something that if you're dealing with a case, it means you're dealing with a problem and that this went somewhere. I mean, you have documentation that just makes it seem like either it's absent and the excuse is, oh, it was unchanged, so I only document a pertinent change, or that it is documented, but it just looks like it's just mailed in and repeated, and then we end up with a big, impacted, infected wound. What happened? How did that change? I know from doing this job that can happen. You can have a wound that looks like it's progressing and you wake up the next morning with necrotic edges are retracting away and you realize this isn't going in the right direction. That can happen, but it's harder when there's just this impression of somebody who's mailing this in and it comes across in notes. What do you think about the documentation by exception thing? Like if it's normal, don't document Really, so that's a struggle for all of us, I think, probably, and you too, maybe? It really depends on the area of practice. And if you're going to do it, you really want to make sure that the people around you are doing it too, because you need to defend it as a, this is our practice. I had a big case with the NICU. It all came down to nursing observations about whether or not a child was showing signs of necrotizing enterocolitis. And you had, which is a condition of the gut where in layman's terms, essentially starts to digest itself. And there's signs and symptoms of that. And you have some nurses who are documenting every observations, every hour when it needs to be documented, hour, every three hours when it needs to be documented, three hours. And then you have do- nurses who are documenting only every nine hours when something changed. It's much harder to defend that that was actually your practice versus I forgot. I think in certain practices, it's necessary. Like if you're in an intensive care unit, and I know you're going to have providers who are on the lookout for wound development in an ICU or somebody's in a bed for a long period of time. The basis for documenting by exception, I think is more understandable to a jury. But if you're a wound nurse, 
And your job is to come in and assess that patient. And that's really, that's the, I shouldn't say it's all you're doing because you have your other patients, but that's really like your sole duty with respect to that patient. That whole internet joke of like, you had one job. I don't like it. I really don't. Frankly, I don't think jurors would respond to it either. And in my world, that's ultimately the thing I have to care about most is what's a jury going to think about this? If this was their family member, or this was them themselves, do they want a nurse who's coming in, checking at the required intervals and making a note so that the next person who comes on shift sees that note and understands it, isn't left wondering like, hmm, why does nurse Donna record every interval, but nurse Sandy or Ted doesn't? Confusion is the, the enemy in trying to defend a case that's documentation heavy, like almost any wound case that I can think of. So consistency is really important then. Yeah, just if it's going to be the practice, it needs to be the institution's practice. In my opinion, it shouldn't be someone's individual practice because it's just you're an island out on your own trying to defend something that nobody else is doing. So why is one person doing it, not everybody else then? Or That makes sense. And that's when things start to sound like excuses, not reasons. I could see that. I'm very impressed that you can say necrotizing enterocolitis and know what it is also. That's going to be very impressive to our listeners. For I'm, this. I'm sure... I'm sure a, a neonatologist would tell me that I didn't exactly say it right by the concept of digesting itself. But every time somebody describes it to me, it's like, so it sounds like it's digesting itself. And eventually I go, fine, Ed, if that's what you want to say. But necrotizing enterocolitis took me a long time. Well, it rolls right off your tongue now. So you're. I appreciate that. Enterovesical fistula was the first really tough that I had to get down. And then learning what it was made it even tougher yeah. staying on a regular process. But, and then yeah. you're going, ooh, I never want that. This is an aside. I have a good buddy who actually was working at White and Williams when I got in there. And I inherited his enterovesical fistula case because he was a very fastidious and straight-laced guy. And, and once he got into having to talk about what that was, medical malpractice defense was no longer for him. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I grew up with a wound. My mother's a wound ostomy nurse. So I was doing PowerPoint presentations for her in 1997, putting together pictures on one of the old big digital cameras of people's impacted wounds and so forth. So there's nothing that you can show me now that, let's put it that way. So I have a question about incident reports or the like of those. So what exactly Mm -hmm. happens if somebody documents in the record that that was filed or completed? Because we as nurses, I think all of us as nurses here, never document in the record that that was done. And so what's the reason for that from like the other side from where you are sitting? To be perfectly honest, I don't know that I've ever seen a nurse or a physician or anyone really document in the record that they also filled out an incident report. And the reason for that, I think, might be that just the, that's not really the purpose of the medical record. So in my world, anyway, where I see incident reports, it's because something truly unexpected happened. In the world, I'm assuming it would be something like things would all seem like they were progressing fine, and then this change in status was so unexpected that I felt like I needed to do a separate incident report. That might be a matter of institutional policy, whether you do it or not. If you're documenting that in the medical record, I'm personally not sure of what the reason for an additional incident report would be, but that could be, again, facility, policy, whatever your risk department wants to do. I can tell you this about incident reports, especially when you're calling them, that's the terminology that's being used for it. They are what I call in my world discoverable. If you document an incident report and it is truly a, I witnessed this happen and some, you'll see them for like patient fell out of bed or patient fell on the way to the commode. 
that kind of thing. If a plaintiff's attorney knows that it thinks to ask for it, and by the way, putting in the medical record that you wrote one is going to make the plaintiff's attorney think to ask for it. Nine times out of 10, at least in the state of Pennsylvania. So whatever you put, in my view, that the guiding principle is always dragnet of just the facts. And this is true for medical records as well, but people seem to know that. That seems to be more innate to the practice. Incident reports is where you see people really decide it's time for them to practice their prose and get illustrative or opinionated about what happened, what caused it, whatever else. Maybe what caused it is part of the factual scenario. Floor was wet, bed rail wasn't up. Like I'm not saying you should obfuscate or hide the ball, but it's not a time to be John Grisham. It's not a time to be Shakespeare and start putting all kinds of finger pointing or whatever else you want to do. Because ultimately, this is the truth. When you write anything, medical record, an incident report, and how you in litigation, and you feel it's the time to express your opinion of what somebody else did, all that's going to do is get a finger pointed back at you, which is why I say just the facts of what happened. Because at least again, in the hospitals I represent in Pennsylvania, what an incident report typically does, we're talking about a patient care incident report, or slipped on the floor or whatever, a patient care incident report in the systems that I work with is intended to launch a, whether you call it patient safety review, quality assurance review, peer review, it's intended to launch that. And so leave the editorial, the subjectivity, if you need to get it out, leave it for the investigation. Because at that point, then it's being handled the right way. It has a much less likely chance of coming into litigation. And that's because how somebody feels at the moment of what happened can be passion, you're heated. It's not necessarily going to be objective. And a person writing the incident report may not have all the facts of what happened. Jumping to a conclusion that may or may not be ultimately supported because you don't have all the information at the time. So if you're going to do an incident report with the goal that this bad thing happened and it needs to be looked at, just get the facts out and then let the investigation, whether it's the peer review, root cause analysis, let that take over. Because the whole reason for those in Pennsylvania specifically where I do my work and even in New Jersey where they have these self-critical analysis privileges, the point of those, there are privileges that make a peer review not discoverable in court. Maybe I should have said that at the beginning. The reason for that is they want to encourage providers when we're looking to things to look at what happened in a situation to improve the quality of care going forward. You don't want that to be stifled by fear of reprisal in a litigation. But right. you can waive that privilege by intermingling your feelings, your that heat of passion, what you might have thought at the time, if you're intermingling it with the facts. Because the incident report itself, which is supposed to be just a like, I saw this happen, here's what it was, that can then be brought to light and it's fair game. That's my general opinion of incident reports. They're not part of the medical record and that needs to be hammered through, but it does need to be just the facts. What did you see? Great advice. All right. So speaking of opinion, I have a clinical scenario that has happened to me fairly frequently in my past work life. So if I have a critically ill patient that develops a pressure injury early on in their course, even though we have all the prevention interventions in place and it's documented, and then the patient has a really difficult and protracted course. So I, as the walk nurse, go back every week and 
reevaluate the wound and you can see it evolving and I can kind of tell it's going to be a significant stage three or stage four wound that I'm sort of expecting based on the patient's ongoing situation and how it presented. So some of these wounds that are very quickly deep tissue injuries that then evolve into very large wounds. And oftentimes our patients survive this, but then they're really left with a very significant problem to manage these wounds. And so as an experienced clinician, I can kind of see this coming. This is a few-part question. So what kind of things would I write as I evaluated that person each week? And should I say that because of ongoing sepsis and pressors and return trips to the OR and morbid obesity, that this is why this wound is doing what it's doing? Or how do you suggest handling that? Because I always feel like I want to be fair to the patient and make sure they're getting the best care, but also be proactive in managing and mitigating risk for my organization on something that I'm not sure we could have done anything else to prevent. So what do you think about that kind of situation? I mean, what I ultimately think is, is always the truth of the situation needs to be documented. It sounds like a little bit like it's a concern of being maybe seem like a pessimist and that in turn making the family feel perhaps or somebody viewing the record look like, wow, Jody never even tried. I saw this person made a quick judgment on what was going to happen and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you see a plaintiff's attorneys love, because it connects with people, of plaintiff's attorneys love to season the idea of hope and will attack you for hopelessness of what are you there for? What are you doing? What value are you providing if you have predetermined that this is what was going to happen? The sad reality is it's true. And it's particularly true in people who have a dozen comorbidities. Right. They are a smoker. They are obese. They are a diabetic. They have vascular insufficiency. They have a bad history of clotting. They have a bad history of deep vein thrombosis. All of the things that let you right. know the vascular plumbing on this person's not working the way that it does on a younger, healthier buck, and this person's not going to heal the way that I see it. You're not doing yourself or anybody else a favor, even that family, even if it doesn't feel good, by not putting those things in there. But, and I think you sort of hit on this in your question of, it can't stop there. It needs to be, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to try to do, whether it's just to mitigate the situation, prevent it from getting out of control, or even just having that frank discussion with the family. To me, the little things that separate something from just looking like it's boilerplate, like a, in parlance of our time, a CYA, um, the details that let someone reading it know like, oh no, you are actually with this person. What I'm seeing more and more is 35 minutes spent discussing and counseling with family. And if the family's not there, which is sometimes sadly the case, X amount of time spent with the patient, X amount of time discussing the plan with the attending. If you're making recommendations for like making sure that the ankles are lifted off of the bed, making sure, reinforcing the importance of turning the patient, et cetera. Those details of the discussion spoke with this person by name. That's what separates it from just making it look like, all right, this is a pharmaceutical commercial. Everyone listens to these commercials where if I take this pill, my hair is going to, well, my hair already fell out, but your hair is going to fall out, <laughs> your, your skin's going to slough off, whatever it is, you can cut and paste that into any note. It's the what's specific about this person that makes it seem like it actually happened, going back to that theme. But no, it's like more and more I see, and this is just in medical malpractice broadly, that exact feeling of, am I betraying this patient by 
documenting something about them, even if it's not flattering. The number of people that talk their way into leaving a hospital and the doctors don't want to discharge them AMA because of these preconceived notions like, well, if I discharge them AMA, their insurance isn't going to pay for it. Or if I discharge them AMA, they're not going to be able to get their prescriptions. Like, first of all, those two things have proven out to not actually be true, but you have to protect yourself. That is the point. And if somebody is, to put it into the scenario you just did, you have this plan and the patient doesn't want to follow it, you have to take your nice guy, nice gal hat off at that moment and put in there what happened. And yeah, these are all the problems that are going to make this worse. And by the way, on top of that, patients not willing to do X, Y, and Z. Patients' families not willing to do X, Y, and Z. That's what's going to protect you. And frankly, that's the difference between the lawsuit happening and not happening, is right. flipping open the documentation, seeing a really good, like, I told you, I warned you, this is the reality from the jump that makes a case attractive or in case of a good note, not attractive. And so sometimes, I know I've been asked, So you see this wound deteriorating and you didn't really do anything. And sometimes you start out doing the maximum, like for a critical care patient. You do all the things in your group of interventions that are consistent with current care in the literature and you start out doing that. And so sometimes there's not anything else more you can add. And this sometimes happens for me with patients who don't tolerate turning because they're so sick. And so sometimes I'll write something like interventions remain in place to maximize skin condition, and then patient can't tolerate turning because becomes hypotensive. So is that type of thing appropriate for us to write, to just document like really what the barriers were at that time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always the reasons for doing something are as important as the reasons for not doing something. And the not doing, more often than not in this world, in the wound cases that I've seen, it is, it's the absence of doing something. Rarely do you see you tried this intervention. I mean, I have not seen personally a wound vac case. I can envision someone making a claim that using, applying a wound vac in a particular situation was too aggressive, et cetera. But typically wound cases are, didn't do enough. And even most of those are in the long term whether nursing home, long-term rehab, in that setting of this, you're fighting the uphill battle of people's preconceived notions of, oh, nursing homes are these places where people are left alone, they're abandoned, and no one's there advocating on their behalf. I'm not saying that's true. I don't think that's true. I think there's certainly everyone can point to articles in the paper about bad apples and so forth. But that is largely a theme you see in those types of cases. So anything where you think you've reached the end of the road, documentation of the families involved, making sure that they're aware, going back to that, going back to that theme of like making sure your documentation helps you prove like, no, this was real. This was a thought process and this happened. Do you think it's good to document including family conversations all the way through? I know I tend to do that because I find that they may not be happy about what's going on, but at least they're not surprised. It's extremely important. And one of the things, though, that you see in it is you're busier at your job. You're writing quickly, and you don't always see it in a way that is clear as to what, if the family had an objection, what it was, what your discussion with it was. So use of things like quotation marks to attribute, this is who said that. This is not my subjective thought. This was not my impression of what the family wanted. Because again, Lots of times you'll have like, no, 
the defense is like, we talked about this. They knew this is what was going to happen. And of course, now that the person is deceased, much more badly off, had sepsis, etc., they might not remember it the exact same way you do, which is why it's really important to make it clear, like, no, 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 like, look, this was written the day of, this happened, here's exactly what the family said. It doesn't have to be in quotation marks, but it needs to be clear that this is how this event unfolded. One of the things that I hear when we do presentations on this, a partner and I did a presentation a few weeks ago to a group of risk managers, and you do get some pushback on like, it takes a lot of time to document things in the detail and what you're saying. I'm an attorney. I work in a world where I have to bill for the minutes that I do things. And as I'm doing them, I'm documenting what I'm doing. It's a unique job. And that is where there's a lot of overlap between what I and physicians and nurses do in terms of I have to keep my own documentation. And the only way you get good at it is through habit. Starting off when you're young in the job, because once you become too old of a dog to learn new tricks, I see it all the time with people who just never get good at keeping track of what they just did and memorializing it. And like I said, I understand that it's time consuming. So if whatever like shortcuts you need to develop, but they can't be the kind of shortcuts that make it hard for you to even go back and answer a question about what happened, who said what, and why did you do what you did? So that developing habits of how you evaluate patients and doing it the same way most of the time. I think many of us do that. That's probably a good thing because then it lends you to not forget one aspect of something. Yeah. Again, that's a good word. Do you and other attorneys use clinical practice guidelines in terms of like references for care that should be provided versus what you're seeing or what somebody's telling you? How does that all go? The way it really works is when a case comes in, we look at whatever the allegations are and we have retained experts out of the gate. So we'll get somebody who's WOCN certified. We'll get an advanced practitioner. And we're oftentimes as a surgeon who is a physician who is an expert in wound management. And they'll usually point us to those guidelines. I mean, in and of themselves, there's not much I can do with them. I can't get on the myself. I can't. In court, you might find this very frustrating as a provider, but in court, there are rules about bringing outside texts and things to just say, look, let me open the book. It says right here, this is what you do. That's here. A court statement brought into evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted. But basically, it's just saying, look, this is written down somewhere. It has to be true. Court doesn't work that way. You need an expert who will get on the stand and testify. Where we can use the guidelines, where we can use them oftentimes, is in cross-examining the plaintiff's expert. So those guidelines are extremely important and will be used to say, like, well, look, you're saying that documentation should have been X on every hour. First of all, this injury was not truly a pressure injury. It was a injury. And so that the guidelines you're using aren't even appropriate to what we're talking about here. And frankly, we use the guidelines to sort of embarrass the plaintiff's expert in front of a jury to show you clearly don't know what you're talking about. But my client is a source of information for those guidelines. I mean, hopefully you're dealing with someone who knows their stuff and can point you in that direction. And then the experts that we retain to help us review the cases, that's a, almost consistently something that we will talk about to say, what can I do? What's in writing that's out there to show that their expert's wrong? Oh, interesting. Okay. And what are your thoughts about the whole issue of unavoidable pressure injuries? During the webinar, there was talk of not really calling a pressure injury unavoidable until after the fact. And so 
what's your experience with that whole issue and around that and how we should handle that? The clinical substance of it, I'm not your expert. I can tell you in dealing with the people that I defend, it drives them completely up a wall. Because as you said, how can I tell you something was unavoidable in real time until it happened and I tried everything that was in my armament to try to stop this from happening? But as you hinted earlier, there are times when you clearly can see the writing on the wall of where this was going. And documenting early and often where you think it's headed is extremely important. And if it becomes one of those unexpected moments, going back to whether or not you need to do a separate incident report or whether it's just documenting it in the record, the worst thing you can do is just kind of go like, you drop the ball. It'd be like, the Eagles blow a 17 nothing lead. And then you go into the press box and just go like, yeah, I don't know. That is never going to do any good. So when it, I don't get into the Medicare. I know that there's like reimbursement issues about that of like never events and so forth and Mm -hmm. the controversy over that. Not my area, but I can tell you from my profession that known complication, somebody who has broken a leg, is diabetic, is a smoker, is going to be laid up for a while, wound is a risk or pre-existing wound getting worse is a known complication. To me, that known complication, unavoidable injury risk of surgery, risk of treatment, whatever. These are all kind of, they're all in the same universe and they're great concepts, but they're really hard for me to prove if your thoughts about why aren't in the document in real time. Uh, Otherwise it just sounds like, eh, Doug Peterson saying, I don't know why the Washington football team came back. There's nothing I could have done. That's it. So documenting early and often when you see bad moon rising, get that down because whether it's you're dealing with CMS or you're dealing with a plaintiff's attorney, it's all you got. And so it's better to say that and be wrong and have things turn out better than you thought. And taking a photo of it too. It's funny because in my world, in most jurisdictions, you have two years to file a lawsuit. So when I see cases, often I'm dealing with a standard of care that's two years old, three years old. That's just when the suit gets filed by the time I'm dealing with it. When I'm in trial, sometimes I'm dealing with something that's seven years old or eight years old. I have a case still that was 2013. And in some areas of practice, standard of care doesn't change that much in other fields. And then there's watershed moments when the concept of never events hit full steam. It's really important to document what you were thinking at the time. But also with the photos, I'm dealing with cases right now where there's no pictures at all. I always say to them, why are you taking the pictures? Well, we take them now. And I go, well, all right, well. Hopefully they will have that. I will say this. I'm somewhat personally jaded about the course from pictures because when I get them, it's because oftentimes the person who has a wound that's developing, they're taking pictures themselves on their phone. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting them from every angle. Pretty sure I'm not getting all the pictures. And you can do things like, judge, give me the plaintiff's phone. Judges are very, very resistant to do that because of all the privacy reasons that you might imagine. So I'm getting just this one person's side of the story my provider, because the standard of care wasn't where it was yet. And personally, I'm not even sure if documenting with photographs, development of a wound is yet full-blown standard of care. Like you do it where you're going to be in trouble. A lot of places are doing it. Hospitals that I represent are now doing it. But also just trying to, I will sit there and show somebody a photograph when I'm preparing them for a deposition and go, here's a picture of the wound the plaintiff gives. Are you telling us that this didn't require like surgical debridement at this time? It looks black. It looks horrible. And he's like, you don't know until you know. You don't know. Of course, it's an old hematoma. It looks black because that's what they 
but in a photograph, you don't see all the shades that you see in real life. I shine a light on it. I can tell you whether or not I think there's a chance that this will resolve, that the hematoma is going to break up, be reabsorbed by the body until it starts to retract and pull away at the edges. I don't really know. And I can't tell you from photographs are okay for size of the wound in relation because it's you oftentimes have a picture of the person's whole leg. So there's like scale, which is helpful. But the subtleties of whether or not something's going to heal and even worse, if you show something to a lay person that will horrify them, but in your bread and butter world, it's like, no, that's not really that bad. And in fact, like, I don't think we're going to need for me to get a surgical consult, or I don't think we're going to need a vac or whatever that additional intervention is. But you show somebody a bad enough bruise from a car accident or something, and people want to throw up in their mouths because the average person just isn't used to seeing this. Even frankly, in court, even plaintiffs have a hard time putting those pictures up because judges just know, like, you got to go hire an artist to do a cartoon of that that will show the size and the scale because the minute you show that there are some jurors who are just going to go like guilty. Like everyone's guilty. Like it's all, all the money, right? You know, humanity is guilty. This should never happen to anyone. Pay all uh, the money. <laughs> and that's the truth. All the money, because look at that person's leg. And it's like, well, no, because, and here's the, and here's my job. My job is to go, oh, okay. So in the case of whether or not a nurse should have, should have told the doctor and the doctor should have told a surgeon to get in there, the reality is it's like, well, okay, so you're asking me, yeah, that looks bad, but do you want me to show you what your leg is going to look like when I fillet it in the operating room to remove all that necrotic tissue? Because that is going to make you want to cry too. And oftentimes by letting it, even if we ultimately needed surgery, we needed it in two weeks, we needed it in three weeks, we needed it in four weeks, we now need less of it because the areas that did heal, healed. The areas that were never going to heal well, now we know what those areas are. So we're sorry that you had to kind of like watch your leg go through this various evolution, but that's because you were hit by a car or that's because you smoked your entire life and now you have really crappy veins and arteries and protoplasm and just generally speaking, you're falling apart. And that's my job is to point out that like, yeah, medicine is hard. It is confusing. Nursing is hard. Nursing is confusing to someone who doesn't have the training. Sometimes in the choose your own adventure of how we manage this person's wound, both avenues are going to be, quote, gross to the average person one way or the other. But my job is to show that like, no, no, but here's the risks of that choice. Here are the risk of being more aggressive. Here's the risk of surgical consult. Here is the risk of because the risk of a surgical consult is that you're going to get somebody who wants to do surgery. You're exposing the person to hospital-acquired infections, et cetera. Right. I think I made my point. Whether yeah. I've yet made my point to the average juror, you have to play the game, as they say. But right. there it is. Every patient's different, too, and so that makes it challenging, yeah. too. It's kind yeah. of an evolving thing. We are updating our organizational guidelines, like for pressure injury prevention or catheter prevention or any of those kinds of things. Do you suggest keeping wording a little on the less specific side. So I I guess the reason I think of this question is turning every two hours has always been the kind of gold standard, and there's not great data to support that. And so now we're sort of evolving into the reposition and then individualize that for the patient, which makes perfect sense to me as a clinician. So do you think when you have like your processes in your organization, it should be a little bit less specific and called guidelines versus policy? 
What are your thoughts on that kind of language or does it matter? We parse that all the time. And it's one of these things that might be important to you and me as educated professionals who work in worlds where we have probably more so you than me, but there are still guidelines. I have my rule of civil procedure I have to follow. There's, you have X number of days to respond to a request. But the reality is, just like in medicine and in law, there's an art form to it and there's wiggle room and there's knowing what is the actual practice in this county, just like knowing what does this particular patient need. So we do spend a lot of time, like plaintiffs will throw up the policy and go like, it's the policy of your institution that turning was to be done every three, two hours. And we go, well, no, it's a guideline. And the reason why it's a guideline is this patient may have completely intractable pain every time we go to turn that person. And based on what their, I guess, relative like lack of comorbidities are, this person probably doesn't need to be turned every two hours. You could wait till three, four, whatever it is, right. or even just more specifically, like something at the time was interfering you from doing that. The patient was not cooperating, whatever it is. So when it comes to a deposition, when you're trying to explain later what it was, that difference of like policy versus guideline can really matter. I don't know how much, to be honest, to a juror, it's probably like, what? I don't know. What really I think more matters is like, hey, look, yes, the words you're using actually, like that is the standard. That's what we do under usual context. We didn't do it here because this patient, this person's problems, patient refused to do it, whatever it was. But I keep coming back to this. How are you going to remember that? How are you going to prove that if you didn't write it down. Again, my job is to come in and help when there's a problem. So I've never seen a case where there's not a documentation problem because if there's no documentation problem, unless it's just a clear case of negligence where you miss something, it exists because of that problem. And then my job is to walk the person through of like, okay, you didn't write it down. Do you know you did it? hundred percent. I know I did it. Well, then how do you know you did it? I can tell from the context. I can tell from the pattern of behavior of this person. I can tell from looking at the lab work, like what I was thinking at the given time. I can tell from my wound documentation that this person was positioned in such a way and that's why I didn't do what I did. And then there always goes back to like, because this is what I'm trained to do and I do it every single time. I didn't document that I didn't wash my hands, but I disinfect my hands every time I go into see a patient because it's right. like putting on my pants. If you show me a calendar date of December 12, 2013 and ask me that I put my shoes on that day, I can tell you with 100% certainty I did because my calendar says I was at work and I've never gone into my socks. But that's the kind of stuff. And it's hard to give anything but that example because it's so person to person. I sit there with someone who's like very upset, being accused of doing something they know they did. And how do you prove it when you didn't write it down? Context. And looking at that context, which is oftentimes unique to that individual person's what I call invariable practice. It means you, you do it every time, all the time, because you don't know any other way to do it. Washing hands is a great example for nurses and healthcare people. Exactly. All right. What else is important that I didn't ask you about or that we should talk about? Can you think of anything? I would say this. Communication is probably the most important word in avoiding a lawsuit. And in if a lawsuit does happen, documentation of that communication will be the thing that saves you. The amount of time, and everyone is guilty of it in one degree or another, medical folks, non-medical folks of like in their work, did I, I hate to use the term CYA, but that's sort of what it is. Did the communication happen? And can I prove it? Even when it comes to patients, lots of times, especially there are certain cases where 
the negligence is clear, the injury is really bad, and there's going to be a lawsuit. And there's like not much you can do to avoid that. But a lot of cases are just driven by patient anger. Mm-hmm. And in one form or another often comes from a feeling of not being heard. So making sure that like if there is family involved, to the extent you're dealing with the patient one-on-one, really doing your best to make sure they understand what you're thinking and what you're doing. I know for nurses, you're at a job just like I have a job. You have good days, you have bad days. Sometimes it can be really hard to leave your personal stuff behind. You come in a bad mood, whatever it is. The bedside manner, the talking with the patient, oftentimes that is what makes the difference between somebody who gets that feeling that I'm in this bad situation because I didn't have somebody who was caring and attentive to what I was doing. So in time, even I just had a very bad case with a poor fella who is now going to have an ileostomy, a nephrostomy, a pelvic drain, and a catheter because he can't void on his own. I mean, he's got four tubes hanging off of him. It was a bad case. It all stemmed from a ureter injury the guy developed pressure wounds as a result from being laid up for so long and this is general bad state of health but it all came from a ureter being injured which is a mistake that happens but it can have if you don't diagnose it right away it can have really bad consequences we were able to get that case resolved quickly easily and for less money than we thought it was going to because the person who injured the ureter just came clean about it i'm not saying that that is you need to be chicken little. And if you think you made a mistake, go running around telling everybody about it. I'm not saying that very specifically. I am saying when something bad happens, reach out to who is your appropriate contact person in an institution, whether it's the legal office, whether it's a risk manager, whatever it is, quarterback with them, but then open and honest communication. When again, I'm talking like a known, like this is something that isn't in the patient's head is you know that there was a mistake. And that person with dignity and respect and owning up to it can alleviate a lot of problems. But my suggestion is always is before you have that kind of conversation, make sure that whether it's the risk office, whether it's legal, make sure you, and to the extent that you're a nurse on the floor, you need to go through proper channels to do that through your nurse manager, through the nurse supervisor, the chain, however it goes, have that conversation first. Because frankly, sometimes what people think is, oh, I screwed this up. It's like, "Mm, no, that's your guilty conscience speaking. This was not something that you did. And that's why you need to have that analysis first. Interesting. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your expertise with us today. I really appreciate it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm happy to be here and anytime. This podcast has been supported by an educational grant from Medela. The WOCN Society does not endorse specific products and services. Thanks again for joining us on this week's episode of Walk Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.